Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, folks. It's V, the Grill Economist, and we have with us the man of the hour, the great game. Again, continues, and we have Matthew Aaron with us. El Kugel is working the airwaves, making sure the broadcast is coming out crispy and clean. You know what he means. And uh, with that being said, you can find Matthew's work at, over at the risingtidefoundation.net, risingtidefoundation.net, as well as the canadianpatriot.com. Is canadianpatriot.com or org? Org. Org. Org, as well as Matthew Substack. The links are on the description box. With that all out of the way, Matthew, I am terrified. I am hiding under my desk this afternoon. I was just telling Siege of the horrible, ter- terrifying news of the newest virus that is uh, right now wreaking havoc across all of humanity with a 75% fatality rate, my man. This is it. This, this is, is it, eh? Yeah. It's called uh, uh, Nipah. You heard about this? Nipah virus? No, I haven't. What is this? It's all the rage right now. It's it's it's. it's <laughs> Um, in fact, if you go to, uh, I don't know, any one of these news sites, just type in Nipah virus, you'll see it. So far, the amount of victims it has claimed is, is terrifying. One person died. Oh, no. One person died. 75% fatality, one person died. <laughs> <laughs> what is this, though? I mean, is this in well, any way a... Uh... Well, it's a bat virus. It's a bat and, virus. And okay. the symptoms are very similar to COVID. And COVID symptoms are very similar to allergy Blue. symptoms, cold symptoms, yeah. flu symptoms. It's all a mishmash. The right. thing with NIFPA is that it, it causes, in, 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 you know, encephaly or encephalitis-type uh, reactions within people. So uh, a 12-year-old boy in, in Kerala, India, uh, my ancestral home, uh, you know, right there in Kerala, was uh, inv- it was infected. And, um, yeah, so they're, they're having, like, a big shutdown over there and whatnot. Um then yeah. you have, uh, and they've dealt with the Zipa uh, thing before. It originated in '99 in Singapore, uh, then it flopped over to Malaysia, then it, you know landed in Kerala. Um, then uh, you know it, it uh, it's a it, is it dangerous? Yes, but it's like Ebola in the sense that it's not an easily transmittable virus. Okay, and it doesn't mm-hmm. dwell a long time on surfaces either. So now the the World Health Organization, the media that you know, because Delta didn't go nowhere and the moo kind of like flopped and it seems like people who are getting the jab are the ones going down with the coof. They mm. need something hysterical to stir us up, keep us distracted from the failings of the unipolar world that we've experienced in Afghanistan. And I figure in this in this mishmash of hysteria that we'll talk about the good news, the hope for humanity, <laughs> Matt. Yeah. Because it's so easy for us to be inured by the distractions of the unipolar world and its failings and think that that's all what the rest of the world is and what that's what the planet is all about. Mm-hmm. It's not. 
So let's no, get into some good stuff, Maddie. I, I yield. Yeah, 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 like we got we we got some good, we got some bad, we got some ugly, and and yeah, I mean, I think everyone's used to uh, smelling the ugly, um, which we're we're overexposed to. So I I guess we could. That's a great way. We'll just look at some of the the positive developments, um, just to to get a little sense of light at the end of the tunnel, um, and before we maybe go appreciate some of the the dark. Uh, nasty ghouls creeping yeah. around uh, as well. You know, we don't want to be ignorant of the uh, the evil as well. Um, and as you just pointed out, I mean, the those creepy, creepy forces trying to manage the world order right now don't miss an opportunity to try to spark up fear and induce another shutdown of our economy. And, you know, in, in the background, the thing to keep in mind that people often like lose sight of in the myopia of, of the of the every day, there's like a new element to scare you uh, regarding whatever uh delta plus uh, isis k i mean there's all sorts of like new things uh to confuse to scare but the thing to keep in mind is that the economy was already going to melt down you know mervyn king the former head of the bank of england had already said uh back in in september 2019 before the covid thing was was enacted um he'd already said we're on the verge of a financial armageddon and uh you know people who are in the know, uh, you don't even have to be in the know uh, on the inside to just see that the whole thing is sitting on a giant ticking time bomb of fictitious capital built up upon bubble, upon bubble, upon bubble, whereas the real economy, the thing that actually gives value uh, to humanity, to society, to the money that we allow to be used in our society uh, has been atrophying year to year for the past decades. So, I mean, that's the only reason why money has value is because it's it's a useful invention that we created that helps facilitate the circulation of commodities, the creation of new goods, and the improvement on the modes of production over time. Now, that is that is something which is the scientific foundation of money. Uh, when you lose sight of that, you you turn into the type of society that we're sitting in, and that so that's that's a weapon of mass destruction that's been set up over the course of many dead bodies, people who actually fought to resist this. Over the years, people like John F. Kennedy, uh, Enrico Mattei, Bobby Kennedy, many people throughout the 70s and 80s, even around the world, who fought to uh, oppose this international virus or parasite of supranational power structures taking over the control of governments. Um, this this is the the consequence that the fact that they would that did not succeed during the times when there were opportunities. Now we're we're sitting on the verge of this bubble blowing out. And so COVID was created largely just as a psyop to have an excuse to control the blowout of that system, the controlled demolition. Um, so just to keep that in mind. Now, today we have nations of the world who don't want to die. And uh, I've got, I noticed CJ, you're kind enough to pull up the 380 agreements signed at the Eastern Economic Forum. This is a real burst of fresh air. Um, the, the, between September 2nd and September 4th in uh, Russia, there, every year there's the, uh, you know, the Eastern Economic Forum dealing with the development, the physical economic development of Russia, Eurasia, but specifically with a focus to Siberia, the Far East and the Arctic. And these are really uh, vectors that uh, Putin has called for, uh, for the coming decades and even centuries. And he opened up this conference uh, stating that uh, the strategic vector, this is Putin's words. I think it's just, it's really important just to get the philosophy in mind. Keep in mind that this is completely synergistic and it tied into the, the China Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, but he said the, the strategic vector for the development of the Far East is towards a new economy 
those areas for economic, scientific, and technological uh, development that shape the future set long-term trends in entire industries, countries, and regions of the world. Here, a broad range of opportunities for international cooperation opens up, as well as the chance to really look up, look at the development of the traditional sectors and branches of the economy. In this incredible um, event, this, this summit, you had representatives from China, India, Mongolia, I mean, all around the world. Um, as you said, 380 agreements were signed, and it's very different from the sorts of economic thing, uh, activities that we see coming out of the drunken transatlantic West, um, which involved the creation, the announcement of the creation of five major new cities, wh which will have between 300,000 to one and a half million people and their families in the Arctic that are being created uh, to capitalize on new industrial development zones. Uh, new energy corridors, new development clusters of hydrogen power um, are going to be a, a major focus. Russia called for um, uh, a 3.5-year plan to uh, increase the production of hydrogen fuel uh, up to, I think it's 200,000 tons by 2025. That, and then... that's, that's amazing. You just said that, how synergistic yeah. this is. This morning, out of a buddy of mine, you know this, I'm a gearhead, Hyundai. Okay, yeah. while while the West is like you know mentally masturbating each other with this whole electric car BS, Hyundai just produced. They're testing out a vehicle right now. It's a hydrogen car, okay, which gets triple the range of. Uh, I mean, God, it's like a thousand mile range. It's uh, six hundred and fifty seven horsepower, hydrogen electric vehicle that they're testing out right now, and this is why Hyundai never. Same thing with Toyota too. Hyundai and Toyota, all the Asian car. There it is. They they are, uh, they're out there and they are really big on hydrogen. They believe it. Hyundai's been Honda has been playing around with it. Mm -hmm. Toyota's been playing around with it. Nissan kind of tipped their toes in it. But Hyundai, which right now, man, I love what Hyundai is doing between Hyundai, Kia, and their luxury brand Genesis. They are killing it. Yeah. And absolutely, uh, they're killing it. My God, I I I'm I'm a BMW guy when it comes to sedans. I'm floored. And it's funny because the head guy of BMW's, BMW's M division, because I, I only buy M cars, M3s, M5s. Hmm. Um, the head of their M division, which is called Albert Bierman, is the head. Hyundai poached him a few years ago. And ever since they poached him, you see what he's doing to Genesis. It's, it's, it, if you're a, an enthusiast, it, it's incredible watching this company turn around. So they're hmm. full on in. Hydrogen. Toyota coming out with hydrogen. Honda coming out with hydrogen. You see the multipolar world going to hydrogen, yeah. Where the unipolar world wants to go electric, yeah. It's interesting how this is happening. And it, it really is, and, and I mean, this and, is something that's it's, it's a technology. Yeah, got it. I know. I mean, this this technology is is so long overdue. I mean, but the the as soon as for those who don't know, I mean, as soon as you combine hydrogen and oxygen uh, in a pure state, which can exist in 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 chambers within a car in a very condensed fashion. It creates a lot of heat, a lot of combustion, very efficient uh, form of fuel. And again, Russia, Asia, Japan, which has a lot of its problems, but uh, technologically they've got a they've got a good sense of how this is going to work. Are recognized that this is a pathway to get there, uh, to get to this future. And we hear them. You hear oftentimes world leaders talking about um, creating a, a zero, you know, going carbon neutral by 2050 or 2060. There's two ways of going carbon neutral, um, which involves either 
massively killing your population by going for windmills and, and solar panels that uh, you could do that just just eliminate people because we don't we often produce we forget carbon dioxide when we breathe um or go for nuclear power go for clean uh forms of fuel go for hydrogen fuel go for natural gases that are of an advanced nature which produce far less co2 um and are just way more reliable and efficient than anything else and that's exactly what we see, I mean, and the way to, you know, you could produce, you can create hydrogen, you can capture it by car carbon capture technologies. That's, that's one thing that Russia and China are really going for. You could, it's, it's, a, it's something that is produced with nuclear power. And again, who are the biggest countries in the world leading nuclear power development? 50% of it is coming from China and Russia and India. Right. Um, so that's a byproduct. That's just something that happens when you have uh, nuclear reactors is it produces well, a lot of hydrogen. Who the world in windmill development? That'll be us, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 remarkable. But that's their that's their future. That's what they're going for. And you know, the, the opportunities for the Arctic right now involve resolving so many problems that people don't even realize are are such issues. And Putin has called for. I mean, the Arctic Passage is going to be. Um, increased by fivefold in the coming years. That's that that cuts off ten days of shipping time from China into Denmark, into the Netherlands, into into the European markets. Ten times. Um, it's much more efficient to make that route. Um, you you have the Northern Longitudinal Railway, which is going to massively be increased to connect all sorts of ports along the Russian Arctic. Uh, new advanced industrial corridors, clusters, uh, are being consciously created and. 10 to 20 year project orientations are, are really being unveiled. So this is not being left up to the randomness of, you know, momentary drives in the marketplace to just maximize profits. There's a longer term orientation, which is not antagonistic to private enterprise. And that's very important for people to get over this Cold War dichotomy that we've all been given of, you know, either be a nationalist who has a national view of, of economic programming for a long term future. That, that makes you a that means you're a socialist communist, anti-individualist, or you're a, a true capitalist who just believes in no state involvement in anything and everybody's free to do whatever they want to, to maximize their profit and reduce their pain. Now that that is a false dichotomy. You can you can harmonize both the general welfare interest of the, the, the nation as a whole and the community of nations as a whole, which is what we see coming from China and Russia and their uh, network of of collaborating nations. China just increased. They just announced the the creation of a new uh, a new stock market, a new stock exchange, um, which it vectors and, and puts a lot of emphasis on their national growth strategies being driven by private initiative. You know, and they're just giving opportunities and making it financially um, viable as an entrepreneur to be a part of a greater project. That's what Russia also announced with the development strategy saying that we're going to offer tax incentives um, and, and, and great, great deals on insurance for companies that want to build real infrastructure in, uh, in the Kuril islands, which uh, are in the Pacific or in the Arctic. So we're going to also provide, you know, they're saying we're, we're just going to create a climate of just making it easy for you to build something which will make you profit, your shareholders profit, and be good for the society that you're a part of. And that's the way we used to do things here in the West too, and we've forgotten how to do it, but they're doing it. They're showing it, showing us how it's done, including with the, the China BRI, which is highly integrated as I think all of the viewers of our show are aware with the, with the Russian uh, development strategies. 
uh, Gazprom as well has made a point that they're going to get out of the U.S. dollar hegemony by by now making their transactions on jet fuel uh, based only in Russian rubles, Chinese yuan. Uh, we have a, we have a whole momentum. The Nord Stream two, you know, Sir, uh, Lavrov just announced that they're just days away from completing the Nord Stream two, which is going to be a total game changer. I, I think it, it it was just completed today. It was just completed today. Well, yeah. I'm going to drink a sip of coffee in honor yeah. of that. That's great. Here, here. I too will join you in drinking the delicious delectables <laughs> coffee. Oh yeah, no, it's things are just changing at such an incredible breakneck breakneck speed. And I would just add also the the um. You have, uh, I, I brushed on the, the Kuril Islands. I think this is also fascinating because in Putin's opening uh, keynote address at the, the conference, he made a point that um, we welcome Japanese collaborators to work on mutually developing a really productive zone on the Kuril Islands. Now, the Japanese are obviously in a bit of a quagmire because they are claiming a big chunk of those Kuril Islands are their own. And I mean... Abe, others uh, in China have been, uh, Japan have been saying that, uh, you know, let's just sign a peace agreement with Russia. Let's, because they, they're still, you know, they haven't signed a, a peace agreement after World War II. They're, they're still technically at war. And uh, let's just let bygones be bygones and uh, move on with, with life. And Russia refuses. Now, in the Western press, that's, that's made out to, you know, they twist it to make it seem like Russia is the, the big bad guy. But when you actually look at the Russian thinkers, and, and the Russian strategists over the years, including Putin, um, they, it's not that they have been against signing the peace agreement with Japan. Their point has simply been, we can't resolve the problem of who owns various Kuril Islands, and we can't have that type of formal peace if you're still a military colony of the United States, which unfortunately Japan certainly is. And as long as the U.S. Is, has forward basing and a full-spectrum dominant strategy of encircling Russia and China around the Pacific with ABMs, anti-ballistic missiles, and other forms of, of aggressive warfare, these islands are not something that Russia can risk going to um, an unfriendly um, quad, you know, a, a, a Pacific NATO orientation. It's not permissible. So, but they did say, let's work together. You know, we, we're building hydrogen fuel cells for cars with a lot of Japanese interests who are looking at this. Japan has a lot of investment in the Far East. Yep. So does China, actually, with the, the Polar Silk Road. And this is another point of reducing of tensions, which Western geopoliticians have built up, right, around uh, the world, is they say, well, let's just get people to fight over territorial disputes. Well, there's no re resolution if you don't have a dynamic of, of economic development to be introduced into a zone that gives people a higher sense of their true self-interest over a long-term uh, program that that in, gets you out of your, your myopic headspace, which is where wars are induced. So the fact that Russia has created its, its uh, Arctic and East that brings in India as a major player. Uh, Modi was a, a, you know, gave a, a, a beautiful keynote address also to the uh, Far East Economic Corridor uh, projects that were being unveiled by Putin. Um, Japan, China, many countries, South Korea, Mongolia, are all being brought into a higher synergy, a, a higher harmonization of interests. So that's strategically of, of high value. Um, additionally, too, I mean, this sets the, the stage for the BRICS summit, which is going to be happening in, in just, I think, three days. So there's going to be a, a BRICS summit. And the, the nature of the BRICS is highly underdefined. Uh, there's a big question of whether the BRICS Development Bank, which went online recently, but hasn't really been used uh, 
to its full potential in any way. I think it's only emitted something like $30 billion of investments um, uh, around those countries who are participating, Brazil, Russia, China, India, South Africa, um, which is very, I mean, they're that's because uh, the big chunk of investments is going through the ADB, the Asia Development Bank. That's right. Yeah, that's, that's where right. the, the BRICS was the initial, that was just a stopgap measure while they were getting the ADB together. You know, the yeah. ADB was the eventual goal. BRICS was the uh, just the uh, the trial balloon that was floated out there to get th- things rolling. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, Lula da Silva gave a good um, interview to Pepe Escobar recently from, from jail um, where he made the point that the BRICS, because I mean, it still could serve a more potent function. The problem is Brazil is mostly captured nowadays. Now, it doesn't mean that that pro-development, pro-BRI forces are not active um, in Brazil, but they currently are not in a, they're, they're not in a complementary paradigm since yeah. uh, Lula, Lula da Silva was taken out and uh, Dilma Rousseff also went through her own coup in 2016. Um, now, <clears throat> he made a point, though, in this interview with Pepe Escobar, that this was not meant to be an, uh, an instrument of defense, but rather an instrument of attack, the, the BRICS Development Bank. And he's seen it just sabotage. He talks about how it's been sabotaged and undermined again and again. But it could still function mm-hmm. within with the AIIB as a more potent tool for development, which we hope does happen sooner than later. Um, but it's the point is there's not just like nobody's putting all of their eggs in one basket, just the AIIB or... Right. Or just the China Import Export Bank or anything. That's a whole yeah, interconnected That's what I meant dynamic. to say. AIIB. I just lost what I said. ABD. Jeez. <laughs> no, no, no. They're... Oh, don't worry about it. I think yeah. everyone knows what you're, exactly yeah. what you're talking about. Um, so we, we have this. Now we have also the the question of Iran and Afghanistan, right? Uh, we know that Russia ha- is harmonizing its energy grids with uh, with Iran. That's extremely important. There's uh, two routes being set up for natural gas and other uh, electric uh, corridors, electricity corridors through Azerbaijan and through Armenia and Georgia from Russia into uh, Iran. Um, This coincides very nicely with the $500 billion Chinese-Iranian energy and security partnership, which uh, is massive. It's a 25-year strategic partnership, which is just beautiful. Um, Russia has its own synergistic program as well, uh, moving in that direction. It's also part of the, um, the Northern or the, what's called the, uh, the transport corridor, the, the, the North South transport corridor, um, uh, which moves, Arctic? it goes from the, it goes from, uh, St. Petersburg all the way down. It involves 17 countries all the way, uh, through to Iran. And it involves also India participating, uh, it moves through Armenia, Azerbaijan, um, many, oh, many, massive. many countries are part of this. Hmm? Oh, that's massive. Yeah. I'm, I'm forgetting the exact name, but it was created in 20, 2002 and it didn't move very fast for a while, but now it's accelerating in a, in a newly revived way. And it, it, and people used to treat this thing like it was an, uh, an opposing antagonistic structure to the, the East West, uh, BRI. Mm-hmm. But now we're seeing that, no, it's, these are actually two sides increasingly of one unified process. And the fact that, again, it brings in pressure to uh, bend to the anti-Eurasian sort of orientation. I can only imagine that some of the anomalies that we've seen with, you know, the, the chaos in Indonesia and, and Thailand, which both, keep in mind, had been forced to bend to um, a lot of pressure to bring in mRNA gene therapy 
in lieu of what they'd formerly do, been doing, which was working with the Sinovac yeah, conventional Sinovac. Uh, uh, vaccines, mm -hmm. which it was only when these mRNA uh, programs were brought in on behalf of Pfizer and AstraZeneca. And I don't know if Johnson and Johnson was involved, but anyway, it's the same type of uh, creepy technology. It was only then that you started seeing these countries go upside down um, yeah. into chaos. So I, again, there's similar operations being imposed onto India as a as a very strong message to get back into alignment with the rules based order. Um, you ha you have other weird anomalies too that I I mean we don't have all of the information on, but Germany was has been another country which is sort of walking in two worlds, the unipolar and multipolar. Yep, the Germany Turkey's the same way as well. Turkey straddles both ends, but they're they're strong enough to push back. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's it's. I mean, if anybody wants any sort of motivation, look how Iran is handling it. You know, mm -hmm. Iran's not going to be taking a step back with these Cretans uh, deciding to leave Afghanistan. They know that they're going to be doubled down, especially with, like you said, the harmonization of the grid, more integration into the SEO, the Shanghai Cooperative Organization. Yeah, they're they got they have their work cut off, but they're prepared, they're ready. And I think if if countries really want it, they got to be prepared to fight. You're not going to leave the gulag. Without a fight, folks. No, exactly. Exactly. And I mean, <clears throat> you brought up Iran, uh, Turkey. That's another country which survived their own. You know, they, they, they were shaken up um, heavily in 2015, December. Uh, or is it 16? I'm, I'm losing track of my, my, my dates. But uh, when there was a, a CIA-backed coup uh, using the Gulen network yes. in, uh, in Turkey, right, to Fortuna overthrow... Gulen. Fotula Gulen, you know, the U.S.-based uh, CIA asset, cultish, yeah, guru CIA asset with a giant cult following um, across Turkey's deep state. They had made a big maneuver at a certain point to uh, remove uh, Erdogan. And uh, and we know where that happened. I mean, luckily, Erdogan, and we say luckily, but it, it, seriously, when you look at the alternatives, it is lucky that Erdogan was able to, to stay in as he did because largely of Russian intervention. The, the FSB provided uh, some forward warnings of what was going on, giving uh, Erdogan a chance to uh, get on a helicopter and get to safety and avoid the coup. Um, and what happened, you know, just a few few days later, uh, or no, this was actually a few days earlier. That was it. Sorry, I'm mixing up. A few days earlier before this coup was unleashed, what, what had happened is Erdogan had made it, had written an official letter apologizing to the Russians for shooting down, right, the Russian fighter jet, yep. which involved the death of one or two uh, Russian soldiers mm -hmm. over Syria. Um, and he apologized saying, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Because that almost like unleashed World War Three. Uh, you know, Turkey is a part of NATO after all, who are, who you know, they, they've made it clear that that at least for now, they're putting their their eggs in the Russian uh, orientation. They're investing in the S four hundreds. They're ma they're increasing their array of S four hundreds in Turkey uh, that are produced by Russia, which render the U S military or the ABM systems in the Middle East relatively impotent and obsolete. Um, you have also in Germany. I think this is something which uh, some people have caught on to just this week. The Russian or the German ambassador, uh, what's his name, Jan Hecker was uh he just died right the russian amba uh, the german ambassador to uh, beijing yeah and again we don't know the full story but when i went to the the chinese uh the cgtn uh website and i i read through the transcript of the the chinese foreign ministry dis describing eulogizing the death of the german ambassador um they did make the point that he was one of the loudest uh, strongest advocates for germany's uh involvement with the bri the belt mm -hmm. and road initiative right 
Um, another another anomaly, I think, that is worth keeping in mind. Without, I mean, you can't speculate too much, but it obviously it's these are anomalies that there's something shady going on. Is the German economics minister uh, Peter Altmaier also uh, just yesterday got rushed into the emergency room? He was giving a presentation at an economics conference in the Ritz Carlton in uh, Berlin. Yeah, and uh, just. He just collapsed and was brought into the emergency room. Now, he did not die. Uh, he's given a, a little, he's twitted. It, twitted. it reminded me, remember like a couple of years ago, maybe, mm. oh my God, maybe almost 10 years ago, Matt, maybe, maybe, I don't know, eight years ago or something like that. Do you remember in Central and South America, all of a sudden leaders and presidents were starting to drop like flies? They mm. all started getting like uh, 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 Fernanda, uh, whatever her name is, the lady in uh, Argentina, Kuchnik. Right. Uh, Kirchner, 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 right? Yeah, you know she came down with cancer. Hugo Chavez. The, I mean, the, the, yeah. I mean, it was a litany of people. Nestor Kirchner as well had yes. just earlier. Uh, he he was one of the the best anti imperial fighters in Argentina. Her husband. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He also died of uh, cancer. I mean, everybody. Yeah. I mean, Evo Morales had a scare. I mean, the list right. goes on and on. Uh, Rafael Correa in Ecuador. He had some sort of health issue that popped. Everybody started getting sick all within the span of like two, three weeks. It was the weirdest thing in the world. Yeah, That's no, I, I, I'm sure. You know, yeah, I mean, it, I, I'm sure future historians are going to have a lot to unravel there, and and some. But but looking at their actions, I mean, that's the thing. A lot of people get a little bit too sucked into um, the 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 details and the mechanics of poisonings, and and I mean, certainly you you can. It's been proven that uh, a heart attack is something which is relatively easy to induce. Um, something which involves uh, cancer is also something which can be done by a variety of techniques. Um, I mean, we, I think they were, they had uh, exhumed the body of uh, uh, the Palestinian um, leader, what's Arafat, um, and found that there were traces of radioactive substances in his bone matter, um, indicating as well radioactive poisoning. Um, Roosevelt as well. I mean, Stalin. Going, this is not a new thing, right? Even Stalin had told Roosevelt's son. Uh, Elliot Roosevelt, that uh, Churchill's networks had poisoned his father and had been trying to poison Stalin as well. Um, likely, it could very well have been something radioactive uh, that was deployed. It could be a variety of other chemical means too. But the point is, rather than get too caught into the details, um, it's more useful, I think, to look at the dynamics of what were these different figures doing? What type of power structures were they challenging? Um, what positive ideas of a future were they bringing online or giving all of their energy towards? And then you can start piecing together what is really behind it. Um, and I, I mean, I think that the, you know, there are some precedents for Western ambassadors who were disrupting a grand strategy um, and then dying very conveniently for those geopoliticians wishing to bring about a new world order. I, I was, since we were talking about, uh, Russia and Afghanistan. Uh, the the name that popped into my my mind a little bit when I was when I was just thinking about uh, Ambassador Jan Hecker was uh, Ambassador uh, Adolf Dubs, the uh, United the American ambassador to Afghanistan. Have you guys uh, heard of the story of Adolf Dubs? No, no, I, I haven't. He he died in February twenty uh, seventh uh, or February. Mm, not sure the date. Nineteen seventy nine. Um. And he had been the U.S. ambassador for about for several months. He had met with uh, uh, Hafizullah Amin, the uh, the leader of Afghanistan, who had recently just run his own coup 
um, not that much earlier against Prince uh, Daoud in uh, 19, the end of 1978. And uh, now there, there, there's <clears throat> people often know a sort of one a history of Afghanistan, right? They they kind of know that the Soviets were in there fighting. They call it the Soviet uh, Vietnam War. They ended up ultimately bleeding bleeding out. The Soviets bled themselves um, in the Middle East. That's why they call it the Graveyard of Empires. Um, but there, the the complexity and the richness of the dynamics is is often lost. Um, one thing that I think is an interesting. I I was reading a. Um, I was doing a review of a book called The Valediction by Paul and Liz Fitzgerald, which is about to come out in a couple of weeks. And they go through, these were the first reporters who were invited uh, to Afghanistan after all of the Western reporters were expelled um, after the Amin, the Amin uh, coup. Now, the thing that they observed in their two journeys in 1980 and 1982, when they were piecing, to, or 83, when they were piecing together things, um, was that one of the catalyzers for... Um, portraying Russia as the big bad supervillain getting into its own imperial Vietnam um, was the death of Ambassador Dubs. And Ambassador Dubs was a figure who was not part of the Zbigniew Brzezinski Trilateral Commission crowd. There was two opposing American intelligence networks at war with each other. Um, this was a point when the more, um, I suppose you could, you could say that the more patriotic forces hadn't fully been purged from the CIA and State Department at that time. There had been a purge in 1969 under Kissinger as he was just coming in with Nixon um, of the CIA and the FBI. Um, there was another purge that happened, ma a massive purge that happened in 78. Um, that was around the time that Dubs was in. And um, Zbigniew's, Brzezinski's entire strategy for Afghanistan was to just, again, pull in the Russians and bleed them. Now, when Dubs was killed, he was in the midst of, he had met with, with Amin 14 times, and he was part of a coalition that was working um, to expose the international narcotics trade. He had run a commission, a Senate committee on the international origins of global narcotics. Uh, at the time, it was primarily Cambodia, Vietnam, Laos was still the sort of zone of heroin. The program, though, was by the CIA and other MI6 forces was to move that zone of production into Afghanistan, which it became to the day as also a tool, not just to run um, a war against, you know, to, in, to destroy Russia and, and the West culturally and spiritually. Um, but it was also to provide a, a clandestine funding mechanism um, with the help also of certain agencies within Pakistan that were very much tied to the, the MI, to MI6 and the CIA. Um, Amin, Hafizullah Amin was a CIA asset. They say that he was, pro-Soviet. But here's the big paradox. Um, why would the Soviets have killed Hafizullah Amin when the Soviets entered in December 27th, 1979? Eight months after Ambassador Dubs was killed, the Soviets entered, they killed Amin. Why would a pro-Russian leader of Afghanistan be killed by the Russians when the Russians uh, did go in there and, br and brought in uh, Barbara Carmel? Uh, well, it's because he was never really pro-Russian. He was always part of another network, which was operational in Afghanistan, um, that was reaping massive revenue off of the drug trade. They were working with the DEA and the and the CIA, um, and Dubs was trying to negotiate some settlement whereby Afghanistan would be where where Amin could make a lot of money 
and and stay independent, but stay independent from both the this the the West and Russia at the same time. And Dubs had met with again, I mean, fourteen times. And the day on one of these meetings, he thought he was going to meet with Amin. He actually didn't. He ended he ended up uh, getting pushed into a car, driven to a hotel, brought into a, one of the rooms of the hotel where a massive standoff was was initiated. These were with. Uh, Tajikistan um, operators who didn't themselves even know what they were a part of. They were just told, take him, bring him to this hotel room, and you'll be given instructions. Now, they were all disposable. They were just sitting there waiting. One of one of the four operators knew what he was a part of, and he left, gave a signal, and then all of a sudden, uh, the Afghan uh, police were there with the DEA, with some CIA officials, and um, some Russian um, advisors were also on the scene. And a shootout was initiated. At a, so this was not this was not done by forces shooting inside the room from from the balcony across the uh, from the hotel or from people storming in. It it was done at close range, and he was like his body his, his the position of his body was was moved. And immediately in the West, all of our media was telling us this was a Russian hit against a U.S. ambassador, and that created a certain climate where people were were frothing at the mouth, wanting vengeance against Russia. Um, Zbigniew Brzezinski was laughing his ass off. It, you know, this is the guy who was actually behind the whole thing because the police commissioner or the, the, the head of the police force, um, something Mohammed, was a CIA asset the whole way through. Amin himself, who was disposable, was recruited to a Trotskyite network in Columbia University in 1957-58. So he was already a, a CIA Trotskyite sort of tool as part of a counter-revolutionary uh, movement. He was disposable. The whole point was to just get Russia to get sucked into an unwinnable quagmire while Zbigniew Brzezinski was putting $500 million or more uh, into funding Mujahideen and other uh, radical Islamic outfits, which Osama bin Laden and, and others were a part of, that became a new global uh, phenomenon on the geopolitical landscape. At the same time as Zbigniew was do was doing this, proving to the world how evil this imperial Russia was, which keep in mind, Russia did not want to be in there for the most part. That was not a Russian imperial program. They got sucked in and they had been trying to get out. And every time they tried to get out, the U.S. would pour more money, more weapons into inflaming the situation. And Russia couldn't tolerate having um, a CIA run nest of terrorists occupying Afghanistan, producing global heroin, most much of it going into Russia, too. Um, so they kept on every time they tried to find negotiations to get out of Afghanistan, they kept on getting pulled back in. And Zbigniew Brzezinski even patted himself on the back years later, saying that that was his best operation that ultimately destroyed Russia. Um, Zbigniew then used this excuse that look how bad and evil Russia is. And Russia is not a not an angel. Don't get me wrong. Right. Under Brezhnev, not an angel, but not what Brzezinski was saying. And then he used that as an excuse to promote this new type of uh, policy on nuclear war in 1980 called the limited thermonuclear warfare option. So it was a new doctrine of um, that was complementary to the mutually assured destruction line of let's have a balance of terror where everybody just maximizes the production of their nuclear warheads. And uh, and that will be sort of a piece of the grave, a negative piece where everyone's just living in fear, but nobody's going to like launch something to all of a sudden an add on, which was flexible response. We're going to like allow for acceptable 
uh, sacrifices of parts of the world. And, you know, we'll agree with the Russians to hit one of their cities. They'll hit one of ours. We'll maybe a lot have a containment of a certain zone if we can encircle Russia and China the way we've been seeing under full full spectrum dominance. Um, and uh, And maybe we'll just allow for a small part of Asia or some of Europe to be wiped out under nuclear war, but we could generally contain it. So that's what underlied the growth of the full spectrum dominance, which is still to this very day, still the, the governing agenda of, uh, of military strategy. In all of this, what's being, again, the, 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 the usefulness of history is so important because what was the alternative? If you look at it, going back this the solution was what john f kennedy was doing with khrushchev or trying to do i don't think khrushchev was able to uh i think he was too much of a of a western asset to be a, a, an honest partner in this but jfk's orientation or what eisenhower was trying to do with stalin and again with khrushchev with the adams for peace or the crusade for peace in in the 1950s that was the that was a way that would provide for a real resolution of the cold war um well, actually, here, yeah, there's there's three things. The best resolution for the Cold War was for the Cold War never to have happened. That was Franklin Roosevelt, Henry Wallace's agenda was no Cold War. We're going to use the victory over the Wall Street, London-funded fascism to create a Russia-China-US alliance for global development. We're going to use new international financial institutions, which then were the IMF, the World Bank, the GATT which were designed originally to be much more like what the AIIB uh, is today as international lending mechanisms for long-term conditionality, free development for large-scale infrastructure projects based on the internationalization of the New Deal. That was the original idea. The GATT, the idea of fixing the, the exchange rates, um, was designed to prevent any type of speculating on, on local currencies, which the British, British Empire had been doing for a long time as economic warfare to keep their colonies underdeveloped. Um, so that was subverted. That would, that would have been the best way not to get rid of the cold wars, to not have the cold war. How was it subverted? FDR died. All of his allies were labeled red commies. And, uh, you know, we know what, we know what went down from there. Uh, and a lot of these institutions were immediately taken over by the deep state. The other, when Eisenhower came in, he was a mixed bag. He was not an evil person. He genuinely didn't want to have things like uh, World War Three take over the world. Stalin genuinely really seemed to have liked uh, Eisenhower and vice versa, but he was a cold warrior and he did have people like John Foster Dulles as his personal advisor writing all of his speeches. <laughs> but he... <laughs> Dulles. Yeah. And his, his, Alan Dulles was no better. But yeah. despite all of that, Eisenhower's approach was first to try to get an, a, me a meeting, a, piece or, a, a, a conference with Stalin in 1953-54 uh, which was about to happen. It was on the New York Times, Stalin to meet with Eisenhower to arrange a, a program for peaceful, uh, a peaceful resolution of the Cold War. You know, Russia had just developed their own nuclear bomb capabilities. And what happens right before the meeting can happen? Stalin is dead. Whether Stalin is poisoned under the doctor's plot or not, I can't say, but very, very fishy timing. And that whole uh, negotiation disappears in 1954. Um, and then again, Eisenhower tries, I, you, one could say maybe it's partially out of guilt for having gone along with the British program of overthrowing uh, the Iranian government of uh, Mossadegh after Mossadegh had nationalized uh, British Iranian petroleum. Um, who knows? 
certainly Eisenhower did go along with that that regime change. Um, that was terrible. However, what he then did to make amends for that, I think, and to push back against this evil orientation, is he then announced Adams for Peace. And Adams for Peace is what created the first generation of Iranian atomic scientists trained in the United States, basically with massive uh, technology transfers to base. And the, uh, the philosophy was every nation deserves to have access to peaceful use of nuclear technology. Everyone needs to have this. Um, so they helped Iran build their first test reactors. Brazil, Argentina also were they had their first generation of scientists trained in the United States and then sent back to build cadres of nuclear scientists with test reactors, um, all of their own to start developing a new type of uh, program of scientific cooperation. So this is a, a, a game changer and Eisenhower's crusades for peace was designed as well at that same period to uh, work with, um, to basically meet with Khrushchev and that was supposed to happen until it was sabotaged and that those meetings didn't end up happening uh, to resolve the Cold War through technological development, change the rules of the game by making investments mutually in new technologies that change how we think of the limits to resources that we're all navigating and negotiating through. The Suez Canal crisis was another thing that was that blew up around the same time in 1957 um, after Nasser comes in, right? And M Nasser, just like Mossadegh, is a nationalist. He's a pan-Arab a nationalist who believes in a anti-imperial program of international cooperation on big projects with other countries. Um, very, very powerful fellow. And the first thing, just like Mossadegh, is he nationalized the Suez Canal. He kicks out the 80,000 uh, British troops that are that have been stationed there. Um, the former government is a Muslim, you know, Muslim Brotherhood. The, the king, uh, I think Faisal, uh, I forgot his name, of, of Egypt, was a Muslim Brotherhood asset. Um which is itself a British Freemasonic operation in many ways, and books have been written about this. Right. Um, but Nasser goes in, reverses the whole program, nationalizes the Suez Canal, and immediately you have a, a, a near war, right? Ru Ch Britain, France, uh, Israel all negotiate to then go in and cr have a war with, with Nasser. The only problem is now Russia is saying they're putting their 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 bodies in front of Egypt and, sit, and they're basically making a point. This is risking nuclear war with Russia if you do this. Uh, like Eisenhower again put, is not told about any of these things. He pulls the U.S. He puts a lot of pressure to keep this from to to keep this from happening. Um, and one of the key guys who's a negotiator um, with Nasser is an ambassador. Again, another dead ambassador, um, Norman. What's his name? Herbert Norman from Canada. Hmm. He's a Rhodes Scholar. Um, I've read a few books, some biographies about the guy. He's one of the most misunderstood figures. But he is a Rhodes Scholar who is actually he breaks with his profile and uh, Nasser really likes him. And during this time that he is there as the Canadian ambassador to Egypt, he's kept uh, Nasser keeps him in. I don't know if it's the presidential palace or whatever for hours, multiple nights on end discussing philosophy, geopolitics. And uh, he's totally recruited by Nasser to a much higher grand strategy, and he's no longer playing the role he was assigned to play in this strategic location uh, by his British overlords. What happens? He's uh, he's suicided. The, you know, mysteriously in the midst of the Suez Canal, he uh, throws himself off of uh, a, a, an apartment building and dies. And they they weave a story about how he was a closet homosexual and ashamed and just decided to off himself that night. Um, but but. 
the reality is that there is this higher geostrategic uh, program of nation states working to create a paradigm of international cooperation around real self-interest, which would not be compatible with an imperial system of social organization ever occurring. Um, it, it just couldn't work if you have that type of society moving towards states of ever improving quality of life, development, new technologies. And that's what the the mutual assured destruction program was designed to destroy. So what happens, and just to finish my thought, and I know we're running on a little bit late here, but it's an important piece of history. In 19, so after, after this all happens, what do you have is the, uh, the, um, uh, what's it called? The Pugwash Conferences in Nova Scotia, 1957. Who sets it up? Lord Bertrand Russell sets up the first Pugwash Conference. And this is bringing together international leaders to say, okay, um, we need a new geostrategic way of managing the Cold War. And it's got to be based upon no new technologies coming in because new technologies might upset the balance and the, everything has to be around mathematical balance. And so the US, which had a massive strategic advantage um, coming out of World War II over the Russians, they, under the Pugwash new ideology, which brought in cybernetics, systems analysis, systems management, um, were induced to shrink their their production of nuclear warheads for a period, while at the same time, Russia was encouraged to maximize to their production of nuclear warheads um, under this age of mutual terror. And that created a new type of climate of insanity, whereby then you had, you know, false debates over whether, um, you know, the the war hawks around uh, Kennedy, around McNamara were going to win the day, who were people like, you know, the former Trotskyites. These were all people who were like Alfred uh, Wolfsetter or um, uh, the, he was basically the, the one of the teachers of a lot of the first generation um, neoconservatives who became the Christian far right Armageddonists. They were all former Trotskyites under this whole network that believed in global anarchy and glo essentially the need to create permanent revolution to uh, to basically justify the the creation of a crisis point that could only be so great that only a new leviathan could be introduced as a solution to impose peace onto the world under world government. So this is what the Pugwash Conference of Bertrand Russell was all about creating, was a false climate of mathematically defined geopolitical games of game theory, which defined the Vietnam War, of cybernetics, the idea of, you know, having um, a helmsman controlling a highly compartmentalized bureaucracy, which would take over the control of nations being run by elected officials. Um, and, uh, and it would all be based upon a very, very anti-human idea of information theory, which meant that human beings and human minds are really just like computers with circuits and neural neural nodes, neural links that connect us all as uh, forms of biotic machines, which could only be managed by computer programs that would ultimately lead us towards a new age of merging human beings with machines in some time in the future. And that's what you know, Bertrand Russell's student, Norbert Wiener, who founded this school of cybernetics and information systems theory. This is what they brought in uh, to Russia under Khrushchev. So the same time that Khrushchev was uh, giving his secret speeches um, and rehabilitating all of the uh, those Trotskyite conspirators who had been working with the neo-Nazis and, and fascist Japanese and uh, Ukrainian Nazis during uh, the 1930s who were purged by Stalin. 
I mean, Stalin cleaned out. I mean, there there were some problems that Stalin had. He, he definitely uh, mismeasured his response. But to put yourself into the situation that Stalin was in during the 30s, there actually was, and I've got a book here that people should read. Grover Fur wrote a book called New Evidence of the Trotsky Conspiracy. And a brilliant book I'm doing a review of right now. Um, it's all, tr it's true. There was a, tr a massive massive conspiracy run by the Trotskyite networks, which were the forces that brought in uh, Warburg money into the Bolshevik revolution to overthrow the czars in, in 1917. Trotsky was the guy who was in the United States for four months negotiating with these uh, multinational fascist financial interests. He was working with people like Bakunin, who we talked about last week. Bakunin was part of the, the pan-European fascist network of Count Kalergi. And, uh, Mussolini was a, a part of that. So was uh, Hjalmar Schacht, Hitler's finance minister, was a part of this organization set up in 1922. Um, that became the precursor to the later European Union. Um, so <clears throat> th these Trotskyite networks were ultimately purged in the 1936-38 period. The evidence is in, like they were working with Hitler, with uh, the Japanese fascists, with all of the, the Western oligarchs, with British uh, fascists around Edward VIII. Um, to depose Stalin, get their own fascist program in, and have an entente. Where Trotsky even says, there's there's quotes from Trotsky saying, we have to work with the international um, capitalists um, of, of England, Japan, and Germany. Um, we have to make concessions if we're going to achieve our goal of getting rid of Stalin. And, um, and they even talk about how Trotsky's for giving Ukraine total independence, negotiating with the Ukrainian Nazis. Um, like, it's really clear that this is all of this stuff comes from Trotsky and and his followers. When he died in 1940, his followers were everywhere in the mid penetrating much of the, the socialist networks, not all, but many of the socialist networks in the United States. The Communist Party of the United States was heavily penetrated by these Trotskyites who went into labor unions and undermined the labor unions from within. And again, it was all with the justification that we need a global revolution, a global war uh, to purge humanity from the belief in capitalism, but everything, um, and create a new, uh, global socialist system, but it wasn't real socialism because it was all based upon a technocratic managerial class of oligarchs managing, um, the herd from above. So the, the these were the guys who brought in, that's why they all loved cybernetic systems analysis. And that's what Khrushchev brought in. When he rehabil rehabilitated a lot of these figures, he brought in also, uh, he unbanned cybernetics, which had been banned under Stalin as a bourgeoisie corruption of a new type of slave system that that uh, mechanized human beings. Uh, it was unbanned under Khrushchev and it was made and normalized and brought into the governing strata of Russia at the same time that the Rand Corporation, MIT uh, freaks, were all bringing this stuff into the United States. So it's really Trotsky's revenge in both Russia <laughs> under uh, under Khrushchev, as well as in the United States under the neocons. It's all the same freaking thing. And Trotsky was always a part of the same uh, Bakunin, um, Jabotinsky networks that were being funded by the same old European black nobility that were tied to the Russian Okhrana, the Russian secret police that ran and managed the secret societies of Russia, the Holy Brotherhood and all of these things that ran the assassinations of three uh, Russian czars who had all been pushing for the development of the Arctic, the development of the Arctic through the Trans-Siberian Railway, which Alexander II began with the help of U.S. 
pro-Lincoln engineers with American protective tariff policies, right? Large-scale state state credit for the development and industrialization of Russia and especially the Far East. That was always supposed to extend into Vladivostok beyond into the Bering Strait zone and connect into the Americas with that type of America that, that was destroyed with McKinley's murder. But Alexander III likely poisoned with arsenic in um, 1898. Um, Nicholas II, we know what happened to him. Um, but all of this stuff was done with the complicity of many of the oligarchical factions and old families of Russia who were vest, they hated industrialization because they their existence was premised upon the idea of feudalism, right? Alexander II was known as the great liberator because he made moves to free the serfs one year before Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. So the thing that hated Alexander II is the same thing that hated Lincoln, that hated McKinley, that hated Garfield, that hated Alexander the Third, that hated Count Sergei uh, Vita, who was the prime minister and who was lar largely fell out of fell from power when the Trotskyite Bakunin network succeeded in their first 1905 revolution, which was only consolidated a decade later with the ultimate murder of the uh, of, of Nicholas II and his entire family. And uh, you know, so it's the, it's this whole thing. It, it, people have to appreciate the game from the standpoint of these more nuanced dynamics and appreciate that there is ultimately at the top agendas to use gang, counter gang, counter, counter gang operations to confuse the hell out of people who are looking at this thing from a bottom up perspective in order to bring about a resolution, which is a global feudalism um, managed by cyber, what today are, have become known as cybernetics theories. That That is what shapes Klaus Schwab's thinking when he talks about the fourth industrial revolution or the the transhumanist movement, which is all over the place. It's all premised around the idea that human beings are machines. The human mind is just a brain and the brain is just a machine, um, which can either be um, made irrelevant by artificial intelligence, or as Elon Musk says with his Neuralink uh, or, you know, programs that we have to merge with machines in order to stay relevant in the, uh, the new age that's upon us. All of this is bullshit. It's all based on a, a provably false fact machines are not i mean you you could prove artificial intelligence in two ways one will never happen which is make hum, make machines do what humans can do but better you, if you do that okay you could prove it but that's not going to happen because machines as as you as we've all cjv we've all talked about this machines can only do what the program that's inputted into them says there's a certain a certain amount of machine learning that that can happen under the rules that are defined for the machine so it can make it can get better on its own at chess using experiences and algorithms and patterns of its experience to um to incorporate into its new performance but it can't create a a better game of chess um the other way to prove that um artificial intelligence will replace human beings is more dishonest but it's get human beings to think like machines if you can get your entire school system and culture to train people to think in a way that ultimately a binary way of logic that only machines think, uh, utilize in digital systems, then it's very difficult for those people who've been processed in that way to then refute the idea that machines cannot think in a more efficient way than they can because machines are such better, more efficient information processors, since that's all the mind is, is processing information. But then is that all the mind is? How does a great discovery 
How is a great discovery made, which is more than the information? It's more than the sum total of the data that the that the great creative scientific thinker is working with, right? There's nothing in the data that offers the solution concept to why the orbits of the planets are elliptical instead of being circular or some other shape. There was nothing that, that Johannes Kepler was working with in the, the, the 1590s, 1600s that within the data of like the positions of various planets and the backdrop of, of the fixed stars in the celestial sphere, nothing there demonstrated that the, the orbits of the planets were one, uh, elliptical where there's like two foci, the sun being one of the foci that there was nothing there to prove that, um, there was nothing to prove that equal areas on the orbits were sweeping out equal times. That wasn't, there was nothing in the data to prove that. And there was no, nothing in the data to prove that by itself, that there was a harmonic arrangement of the orbits around the sun, according to well-tempering uh, divisions of um, a string, which produces, you know, if you, if you have a string and you, you pluck half the string and you compare it to the whole resonance of the string uh, as, a, as a unity, you have an octave of a high C and a, do, and a, and a low C or whatever note you're playing with. And then if you if you make conscious, rational divisions according to certain core principles, um, like dividing the string by four, dividing it by five, which is equivalent to the putting a square inside of a circle or a pentagon inside of a circle, or dividing it by three, right? Which is a triangle inside of a circle. It's the, as you create these divisions, which are which have resonances, which have to each other and to our souls, which hear music produced by these resonances of the hard and soft musical scales, which produce beauty, right? It's like a conduit to awaken beauty. And the fact that that's something which we have found in bells that were well-tempered or equal-tempered in Tibet, thousands of years old, that were just made according to these proportions. Or we found also flutes from 30,000 years ago, which were, had their holes drilled in such a way that the when you play it, the, the resonances that come out are in accordance very closely with these resonances that Kepler found later on to be what govern the, the, the motions of the planets yeah. at their, their quickest and slowest positions from the sun in a harmonic way. It's already there in the universe. And that's what the oligarchy is afraid of, that human beings recognize that there is, that there is a, a resonance between the human soul and the species as a whole to the universe that we're a part of and that when we act according and make our, our political economic decisions in accordance with those facts that are discoverable, we create situations of things that, that computers could never forecast or do. They're just useful tools that we create to help us, but they can never replicate that phenomenon that allows us to tune ourselves like an instrument of, as a species to the universe. And you could you could discover this with the, by reading the writings of of Benjamin Franklin and how he discovered the, the laws of electricity or read uh, Max Planck and how Max Planck discovered the harmonic oscillations of the Planck constant inside of the black body radiation when, when you heat up a, a black body like a stovetop and it begins to change color and emit light of different frequencies. Mm -hmm. uh, Planck was, was able to discover processes that no sensory data alone could, could uh, wield. And... Um, Einstein did similar things when they were together playing Mozart together as they were all musicians trying and they, they related to their musical part of themselves to unlock their creative creativity where, where, where their analytical mathematical knowledge failed. That was the, the solution to all of the, their, their mental creative blocks. 
So anyway, th this is the type of, of uh, political, cultural, educational heritage that is our right to have access to. And there's a lot of work by these cybernetics, anti-humanist, trans transhumanists, they call them transhumanists, but they're anti-humanists. They've, they've put a lot of obstacles to stop this with critical theory, common core, other sorts of false modes of teaching and uh, and behavioral practice in economic affairs that that block this natural part of ourselves from from expressing itself. All that to say that that's what I th I see being revived by the Russia China orientation right now, um, especially with the focus on the Arctic on space development, where China has announced a, a program to put their human first human beings on Mars by 20, 2033 and many more things like that. So there's hope. There's hope. Very well said. Matt, thank you so much for coming on and sharing this with us. Um, folks, again, you can get him over at the CanadianPatriot.org as well as the RisingTideFoundation.net. Links are in the description box. Make sure you subscribe also to his Substack. With that being said, anything else you want to uh, – any last-minute things you want to say, uh, Matt? No, I'm good. How about you guys? Oh, I'm exhausted, man. I'm recovering from Good this, stuff, so. Matthew. Good stuff. <laughs> okay, I, yeah, that's I, right. I a Nipah virus over the weekend, so I'm just <laughs> – <laughs> All right, cool. I yeah, I feel like I, I ranted a little bit, but I figured it's it's stuff. It's good to just throw that out into the zeitgeist and and let people sort of wrestle with it. I love it. Yep. Now you did awesome. It was a perfect uh, perfect breakdown and a great synopsis of everything that's happening in the historical context that is very in, very vital in order to understand where we go from here. Cool. All right. With that being said, CJ, take it away.